Paul the Apostle was on his way to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. Figured it'd be a good place. If you're going to share the gospel, share it in a popular place. Share it in Rome, the epicenter. But he was going there in a way that he didn't expect. He was going there not to visit his friends, not to visit the Romans, that church, but he was going in chains, in bondage, because he was to be tried before Caesar for talking about his faith in Jesus Christ. And so as he's prepared to go to Rome, it says in verse 9, Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest in winter there. Sometimes you read these details and you can kind of get lost in so many specific details. It's really good for us that these details are here because we can track exactly where Paul went on his missionary journey. It's, that's how you know that this stuff actually is historical. It really didn't happen. It's not made up. And beyond that, so Paul is telling the centurion, listen, it's probably not a good idea to go. And I, I kind of just have this feeling if we leave now, we're going to be in danger. We're going into a storm. But the centurion believed other people rather than Paul. He believed the owner of the ship, the helmsman, people that are experienced. You can't really blame him either. I mean, if you're going to take advice on what you should do with your crew, you'd ask someone who's experienced in the sea, not experienced in shipwrecks like Paul was, an experienced prisoner. But it says in verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. You know a storm's bad if they named it Euroclidon which actually just means northeaster. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on certain sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appear for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. So gradually, the storm got worse and worse and worse to the point that they figured to strengthen the ship, they would take cables and wrap them underneath. It was an ancient practice they did so that the, the ship didn't just explode into a bunch of pieces by all the pressure of the waves around them. And so it says that neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. In other words, the clouds, the sky was so overcast that they just feel like it's never going to be daytime ever again for them. And so they lost all hope. Verse 21. But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. 
and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. That would totally be me. Everyone's fearing. Everyone feels like all hope is lost. We're going to die. And Paul stands up and says, see, I told you. Like, if you listen to me, then we'd be okay. But you didn't listen, so we're all going to die now. Thanks. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all, all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul basically explains to him, listen, I know you're really scared. I know you're really worried. But don't worry because an angel appeared to me. I know that sounds weird, but he really did. He, he talked to me and told me that I would make it to Rome. I need to appear before Caesar. I need to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to Caesar. It's going to happen. But he didn't just promise me that. He promised me that all of you get to survive with me. So take heart, be strengthened, for I believe that will be just as it was told me, he says. But we're going to be shipwrecked, by the way. Verse 27, now when the 14th night had come, 14 nights of this craziness had come. As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. So they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And then they got a little farther. They took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. This is like kind of ancient sonar. So they're like dropping things, checking how far away they are from the shore. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. It's like a hardcore band name. Prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. In other words, just eat, because we're going to make it, you're guaranteed, but you still need to participate by getting enough strength so that you can swim when we all crash. It's going to happen, but don't worry. Not even a hair is going to fall from your head. Verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. They're all encouraged, and they also took food themselves. And in all were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lined the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed the bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So they're starting to crash now, going towards the island. They're crashing. They're scared, but it's okay. Except for the fact that, verse 42, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion wanted to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So you're probably thinking at this point, what in the world does this have to do with a theme called mouth factory and how we use, use our mouths? Well, absolutely nothing. No, I'm kidding.
we have to ask ourselves the same question that these sailors are probably thinking. In fact, what many people have been thinking for the past seven chapters. Why is Paul on this ship? Why is he here in the first place? You have ex-convicts, you have criminals, you have all these crazy people that probably did a lot of bad things, and then you have Paul the Apostle. Why is he here? In fact, that's what happened seven chapters ago, in chapter 20. Paul tells his friends, here's the backstory, tells his friends, hey, listen, I need to go to Jerusalem. It is imperative that I make it to Jerusalem. I must preach the gospel to the place from which all the Jewish people are, where all of them congregate. I need to go and speak to my own people. And all of his friends are like, listen, if you go, you're going to die. There's this guy that came up to him and is like, listen, you're going to be bound. And he like took Paul's belt somehow, wrapped his arms and wrapped his feet and said, you're going to be bound. You're going to be imprisoned if you go there. And so everyone's weeping, crying, Paul, don't go. And he says, my favorite verse, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I would finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I must go. I don't care. My life is not my own. I need to go to Jerusalem and preach the gospel. He was so set on that that he was willing to endure whatever. So he leaves for Jerusalem. He walks in. And people tackle him. They're like, there's this guy who's trying to corrupt the whole faith. And they take Paul and they imprison him. They start beating him, butchering him, whatever they could do to make him not want to come back. And then he has to be rescued by a commander of Jerusalem. Who's like, what's this all about? So they pick up Paul and like, what are you doing? And he actually thinks that he's this Egyptian uh, rebel that takes 4,000 people into the desert. Like an Egyptian terrorist. And Paul's like, no, I just, I just believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. That's it. He's like, that's it? He's like, you did nothing else. Why is the entire town in an uproar because of you? So then he's like, can I just talk to everybody for a second? Just let me see if I can do something. So then he puts him up on a stage, and then he starts preaching to everybody. He's like, men of Israel, listen. And he uses this opportunity to preach the gospel to all of them. And then they go crazy because the minute he mentions Gentiles preaching to people that are non-Jews, everybody goes crazy in this uproar and wants to kill him again. So then he's like, all right, we need to just get you out of here, whatever. And then brings him to the governor, Felix. And then he uses that opportunity to preach to Felix, the governor, for two years. And Felix is like, this guy is really interesting. Why is he here? And so for two years, he had this guy come up to him. Felix is replaced by this guy named Festus. And Festus is like, why is this guy here? I have no idea. Well, and then they're like, well, he wants to appeal to Caesar. Like, well, we can't just send him to Caesar and be like, here's this criminal that wants to appeal. And we have no idea why he's here in jail. So he asked him with King Agrippa, and King Agrippa's there, and asked, why are you here? And then Paul starts preaching to King Agrippa. And then King Agrippa's like, you almost make me want to be a Christian. He actually says that in the Bible. You almost make me want to be a Christian. And he says, paraphrase, I wish everybody was just like I was. Everybody here was like me, except for these chains. Except for being like in bondage. Other than that, I wish you were just like me, because I have a hope that you don't have. So then he's like, all right, well, let's send him off to Caesar. We could have sent him free, but he wants to go to Caesar. So off to Caesar he goes, gets on a boat. Here we go, landing in chapter 27. And you're still confused. What does that have to do with anything? Paul is speaking to the people on the boat that have lost all hope. So if we summarize this chapter, 
Paul encourages a boat of helpless, condemned criminals that God, by his grace, will save them. You see, all throughout these couple chapters in Paul's latter life, people wanted to know what Paul was saying. Why is he in trouble? Why is everyone in an uproar? And the reason why is because his message was not being given clearly. The message of the Lord was being tainted. And so if you think about it, Paul was speaking to religious people. Paul was speaking to people that claimed to be in love with the Bible, went to church, went to synagogue, did all the right things. And what Paul is saying is you have messed up the message. It's completely wrong. And because of that, he wanted to go at whatever stake and give people hope in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing for us. I think, largely, the entire message that Jesus wants to preach to us has been completely missed. Largely, I think everyone has missed out on what God has been trying to say for so long. So if we talk about encouragement, talking about lifting people up, people automatically think, I'm going to say something nice to you. Christian, you look really good today. I'm going to encourage you. You did a great job. And we think that's encouragement, but true encouragement just means giving people hope. What hope is there apart from Jesus Christ? Think of encouragement as strengthening people's hearts. Why would we strengthen people's hearts if there's nothing to hope for? If our hope is in vain, then we all might as well just have a social club and hang out and never talk about the Bible. And we just go around in a circle and say, so how can I make you feel better about yourself today? But Paul's message was different. And it's the message that we need to understand too, which is it is not about how good you are. It's about how good God is. This is all about God's grace, not of works. Otherwise, we could start boasting about it. But here's the thing. Each and every one of us walk into the church and think things like, oh man, I don't know if I fit in here. I did mess up this week. Oh, did I read my Bible today? Because if I get asked, then I'm going to have to like say something. Oh man, I forgot to pray for that person. And a lot of people don't come to church because they feel like they're just going to feel guilty and condemned. But is that the message that God wants to speak to us? I mean, how many messages, how many sermons have we gone through where people are reading this book and you come out of it thinking, oh, I'm going to try harder tomorrow. I'm going to, tomorrow, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. Tomorrow, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to start praying for people for like an hour. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a better person. If that is your mentality when you leave here, you've missed everything. It's like God wants to say something to us and we completely miss the point. And that's what Paul's been saying to the Jewish people. Listen, you realize why you're a Pharisee? You think you're pleasing God. You think you're doing the right thing, even to the point of persecuting Christians. But you've missed the whole point. And they're outraged, like, how could God ever love Gentiles, people that are not chosen, people that are not Jewish? They couldn't wrap their heads around that because they were so stuck into the box that they weren't willing to see what was right in front of them, that Jesus Christ died, was crucified on the cross, and he rose again in three days. And Paul's eyes were open to this, and because of this hope, he wanted to risk his life to make sure every single person knew the grace of God. Now think about this. 
Here we have in this chapter, Paul is on a boat. People are hopeless, completely hopeless. There's nothing they can do. They're on this boat for 14 days, cannot see a single thing. The clouds are covering their eyes, but we have a God who sees above the clouds. And our job is to lift people's eyes up towards him. Our job as Christians is not to give people a solution on how to survive in a boat. How to survive in this life. How to be a better person. How to enjoy the most out of life. Our job is to get people to lift up their heads and see Jesus. Who sees above the clouds. Yeah, it looks miserable right now. Yeah, things look hopeless right now. But that's why you have to set your eyes on things above, not on the earth. Because you, you have died and your life is hidden in Christ and God. That changes everything completely. So now it's not about the survival plan on the boat. Now it's about trusting God. So once again, a boat full of condemned criminals who do not deserve to be saved. And in fact, that's why the centurion's like, if they just try to escape, kill them. Because they were going to most likely die in the Colosseum anyway. But God chose to save these condemned criminals for no reason other than he's just gracious. That's it. And what did they have to do? They simply had to stay on the boat. If they tried to jump off and save themselves, they would have lost. If they tried to do their best, there would be no hope. But they simply had to believe the word of God from this random guy named Paul. Who said, don't worry guys, I talked to an angel. He said, everything's cool. We're good. Just stay on the boat. And now that you've had that hope, eat a little bit. Be nourished, because you're going to need some food in your stomach since you've been fasting for 14 days so that when you do swim, you're going to make it to shore. But not even a hair of your head is going to fall off. That is grace working with our faith. So now that's us recognizing God is saving us, but that doesn't mean that I'm just going to sit around and and pretend like everything's okay and I'm not going to do anything. But now I'm going to receive from God what he's given to me. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. But I'm not going to turn these things into points of merit. Because that's exactly what we do. We cheapen the law instead of the Ten Commandments and be like, I have to be perfect and I have to love my neighbor. I have to obey my parents. I have to do all these things. We're like, oh, as long as I read my Bible and I pray, I'm a good person. No. That is not the law of God. If you want to keep the law, do everything. Don't just say like, oh yeah, I'm going to... This will make me a good person because it makes me better than all my friends. And we have points of comparison. It's that we are all terrible people and that's why we're here in the first place. All of us are terrible people. And here's the secret. The older you become a Christian, like the longer you've been a Christian, the more you realize what a sinner you are. And you look back at your life and you're like, I thought that was good. Oh, that was bad because that was done with a bad motive. That was done selfishly. And in fact, I don't think I've ever done a good deed in my entire life. The more that you approach the light, it shines light on the crevices of your heart. And then the shadows are exposed and everything comes to light. And you realize, wow, I'm a dirty, dirty, rotten sinner. And I need God's forgiveness all the more. So we mistake what sanctification really means. Sanctification doesn't mean that you just become this perfect person on earth, right? It partly means... That as you approach God, he's going to reveal to you areas of your life where you need to change. And you need more of God's grace every single day. That means you will make moral improvement, but not apart 
from God's grace. It doesn't happen of your own merit, your own works. We've turned all of God's grace into work again. We've turned into the fact that God says, yes, I'm going to save you. You're going to make it to the shore. Don't worry. Into, I need to develop an escape plan. I need to do everything I can to make sure everybody's safe. And is everyone accounted for? And we're going to make sure that we all get through this together. And you're making yourself tired because that's not why God wrote the Bible. In Acts chapter 20 earlier, Paul actually warned the people, the Christians, saying in verse 29 that I know this. After my departure, in other words, leaving to Jerusalem, he says, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. What was he trying to say? He was saying that there are people in this world who will twist God's message. And you need to be careful because it's a lot easier to believe people that you think you can trust. It's a lot easier to fall into as prey to people that you've been trusting for a really long time. People are like, oh, it's a religious person. What they say must be true. Maybe it's not even intentionally that they're trying to deceive you, but there are some people that will try to deceive you, and you got to be careful. I heard a pastor say once that atheism is very easy to dis disprove. That if, if a person says there is no God, well, the Bible says a, a fool says in his heart there is no God. It's easy to prove that God exists. Here's the problem, and here's the real difficulty. When people mess with the Word of God, now you have all kinds of different denominations trying to make a claim on what God really said. That is some of the hardest work as a Christian, is trying to figure out, but what did God say? Before we give a message to other people, we speak to other people, we need to make sure that we have a clear message from God and a clear understanding of our own salvation and what the gospel really is and what grace really is. Otherwise, we're going to turn people into a bunch of Pharisees. You should be like me because I do all these great things. And that's what being a Christian is. We turn the turn Christian into being living for God rather than what God has done for you. What Jesus has done for us. And that's why the vision statement of impact is let Jesus impact you and impact the world through you. It has to start with Jesus and end with Jesus. Not begin with ourselves and end with ourselves and what we do. It's Jesus who starts the work and Jesus who finishes the work. I think about when I was um, going to England years ago and we we're on the way back. And if you've ever been on a plane, you're not allowed to take liquids onto a plane. That's because back in 2005, I think it was 2005, 2006, there was a terrorist plot where a terrorist wanted to bring a Coke bottle and a camera and somehow because of the liquid he would put inside a coke bottle that looked like coke he would dump it down the sink and ignite it with a camera flash and it would be a bomb and blow up the entire plane so from that point forward they stopped allowing liquids on the plane and it just so happened that that plot was foiled the night before we left the same airport in England to come home so the same airport where that plot was foiled the next morning we were leaving out of England to come home and so they kept us on the plane for three hours long. Just three hours long. 
interrogating every single person, going through every single passport to make sure that no terrorists slipped through. Well, just so happens, to my dismay, that a person was taken off the plane in handcuffs. So I looked out the window and everyone's like standing up. We were scared. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy was just taken off the plane in handcuffs. That is not good. And they're like, and hey, now, ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to depart. And like three hours later. And so what's going through my head is, we're dead. That's it. It's over. And I'm thinking, you know, I want to do a lot of things. Want to get married. Want to get married. Start a home. Get, a ma get married. <laughs> and all those plans just were just foiled. And so I started playing in my mind, like, the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So there's no way that God could finish me now because Pastor Joey Rosek is here. <laughs> like, that was actually my rationale. I was like, God might be finished with me, but I'm pretty sure he's not done with that person, my old youth pastor. So I'm good. And then I took a nap and I was okay. We made it home. What's funny though is I think that's, that might be how the, the prisoners felt. I'm not a good person. I'm a convict. I'm in this boat. But that guy is a genuinely good person. And I know I'm, I'm going to make it because of what God promised him. Not based on my own works. You see, the reason why you're saved isn't because you're a good person. It's not because you impress God and you're sitting down here and God's like, man, I really need that person on my team. I really need Joe Fisher on my team because the way he reads his Bible, I'm just so blown away. Like he got that devotional and he just like completely is rocking it in ministry. So I'm going to make sure he's on my team. No, none of us are that way. And some of us feel really insignificant when we come to church. And you're here and you're sitting here and just like, what do I have to offer God? Nothing. Good. None of us have anything to offer except ourselves. And the Bible asks that we would offer ourselves as a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. That's all God asks us to do is just humbly come before him and say, here I am, Lord, send me. So this is why this is so important, because if you don't get this, we will come to church and every week we will seek to improve ourselves morally and miss out on the entire gospel. We'll miss out on the good news, which is that Jesus Christ save you, period. The end. It is finished. Paid in full. He signed the receipt. When you go out to a restaurant and you sign a receipt, you don't have to show up next week to sign it again. You don't have to show up and pay the bill again if you've paid it once. It is paid in full. It's done. But here's what we do. And this is what I want to share with you. In Hebrews chapter 10, you don't have to turn there if you want to. It's fine. Hebrews chapter 10 it says in verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, you who are being sanctified, you're becoming more and more like Christ. You are already perfected in God's eyes. That's it. You can add on to perfection. It's done. And that's why it says in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So these people are on a boat. 
They're scared. They're worried. They have no hope but a hope in Jesus Christ. To believe that his word is true and that he is faithful. That doesn't mean that the skies aren't going to be gloomy. That doesn't mean that the waves aren't going to scare us a little bit. But that means that you can have the assurance knowing that he who promised you these things is faithful to, to complete it. If God is the one who holds you, no one is powerful enough to snatch you from his hand. And he's going to raise you up to the last day. Oftentimes, I think we don't know what it means to rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, you can turn here if you want. Hebrews chapter 4, because I don't want you to miss this. Hebrews chapter 4, just turn there real quick. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 9. It says, there therefore remains, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about there was a day in which the people of Israel left Egypt. They're leaving to go to the promised land. And as they did that, they were complaining, grumbling the entire way because they didn't believe in God. What was so unbelieving about that? They had to believe that today could be the day they could enter into God's rest. They wandered for 40 whole years because they didn't believe that God could bring them any day into his rest. And it's the same thing for us. Some of us are so exhausted. You come to church and you are just dead. And for good reasons, right? The world is beating you up. Just like Paul, he was beat up. He was scourged. He was tortured. He was imprisoned. He's beat up. But for whatever reason, he had joy and he just like, it didn't phase him. It didn't move him. How? Because he relied on God's grace, not on himself. He rested, in other words. But many of us are working. We're working so hard. We're working on our status. And we want people to love us, to think that we're great. Here's another one for you. Here's a comment I hear all the time, especially when it comes to dating. So you can pay attention now. A lot of people say, I want to be a guy, or I want to be a girl who's worthy of one of God's daughters or sons. So if I'm a guy, I want to be worthy of the, the woman that God has me to be with. It's great. But here's what you're implying. That you can actually do something to make yourself worthy of what God gives you. You cannot do that. It is impossible. I don't care how great of a guy you are. Maybe you're like Mr. Holy and you meditate on God's word day and night. You don't have any evil desires. And you don't even look upon a young woman with lust at all ever in your life. Somehow you're like on, on the news channel and you're just like your eyes are just glued to the news and never to the sidebar. You're just a pure and holy person. Even if that were possible, I don't care. You're not worthy of one of God's girls. It just wouldn't happen in my eyes at least. It's a gift of God. God gives us good things wholly apart from our merit. 
And here's the other problem, because if we do things with that motivation, here's what we do. We treat God like a cosmic vending machine. So I'll do good works. I'll make myself a better person. I'll start reading my Bible every day. I'll start praying every day so that God gives me a woman. So that God gives me a job. So that God gives me whatever. And now we're saying, God, if I do this for you, would you give me this? And we're missing the point. It's all about God's grace, which is unbestowed favor. So now what happens is, if you believe today can be the day of rest, what does that actually look like? Well, if you're working, you're not resting, obviously. If you're working so hard, you're sweating, you're tired, every day you come and you're just beat up, maybe you're just not getting enough sleep. Like if you are tired throughout the day, you're, you're dozing off as you're driving or you're at school or whatever, probably you're not getting enough sleep. In the same way, spiritually, if you're exhausted spiritually, maybe you're not resting. So if you're working, you're not resting. If you're not resting, you're not trusting. If you're not trusting, you're not believing. If you're not believing, you're not seeing. So if you're working, you're not resting. If you're not resting, you're not trusting. If you're not trusting, you're not believing. If you're not believing, you're not seeing. What's the first step? You got to see God. See him for who he is. Know his works. Know what he's done for you. Believe that he can bring you into the place of rest today. Like the people of Israel, they didn't believe that today could be the day of rest. Today they could enter the promised land. Today you can rest. See that. Then believe it. Believe today can be that day. If you believe it, then trust him. Yes, Lord, it's your work. It's not my ability. And if you trust him, then stop working. Just rest. Relax. You don't feel like reading your Bible? Great. Be honest. Tell God, I don't feel like reading. You know what the Bible says? It is he that works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the will comes from God. The doing comes from God. It's all about God. Why are you making it about yourself? Why do I make it about myself? Because this can be the most frustrating thing in Christianity because we always wake up exhausted because we haven't relied on his inexhaustible grace. There'll never come a point in time where it's like, God's like, all right, enough grace. I'm done with you. Goodbye. He's not going to do that to you. That's why it's so important that we bring ourselves back to him. And this is what it does. Secondly, this is so important. Romans chapter 15. Rome was done. Romans chapter 15, you can turn there real quick. Romans chapter 15 in verse 1. Says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who repro reproached you fell on me. For, and this is the important verse, not like some aren't, but this is very important for us. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort, or in other words, encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Here's what he's saying. Because God is giving you everything, he's giving you the Bible. Like, think about this. David didn't have the entire Bible. King David, he didn't. Daniel didn't have the entire Bible. You guys are on the right side of history because you get the entire counsel of God. And the entire Bible was written for our learning so that we could have comfort and encouragement and know, wow, in time, in time past, God has been really faithful. He has not failed once. There's no verse in the Bible that talks about how the people of Israel were failed by God. There's no verse that talks about and the people of Israel were hungry and starving and then God was like, well, sorry, I was taking a nap and they died. That's it. Jesus was going to show up on the scene, but no one was there to take care of Mary and Joseph. And that's it. They just died. The end. God will always be faithful. But why don't we get in our heads that he's faithful? Why is it that we've missed the whole message of Christianity? Which is, it is God who works in us. And he does the work. And once you get that, now you've become a different person. Because since I have everything from God, everything I need is from God, and I'm good. I don't need anything else. Now I can love people without expecting anything in return. I can speak words of encouragement to you and not expect for you to compliment me. I mean, there's sometimes you'd be like, you look so pretty. Okay, tell me I'm pretty too. Ready? Come on. Come on. Like, like for like. Comment on my status. I'll comment on your status. People want to receive what they give out. And you think, I'll love you if you love me back. And you'll say things, and the minute they don't love you back, you're like, you see? And I did so many nice things for them. I bought them Christmas presents. I showed up to their sweet 16. They didn't show up to my sweet 16. They're not my friend anymore. First of all, you're a guy. You shouldn't have sweet 16s. But you can always tell if we're trying out of the flesh versus trying out of the spirit because when we try out of the flesh, we'll always expect something in return. When we apply for a job, we expect to get that job because we deserve that job. We'll apply for a position. We'll try to make a team and do tryouts because we deserve it. After all I've done, shouldn't I deserve this person? But you've missed the whole point because everything we receive is a gift. And we should just be thankful for that and communicate that to other people. So, all that to say, if we get this, that the Bible is written for our encouragement, then we can encourage others because we're not requiring anything from other people. And so this was Paul's life message, and I hope that all of us get that. Because John Stott who was a popular theologian back in the day, he has this great quote. He says this, Nothing seals the lips and ties of the tongues like the poverty of our own spiritual experience. We say nothing because we have nothing to say. If you aren't naturally having an opportunity to share God's love, perhaps you've not had a true experience with Jesus. So instead of evangelism being this thing where it's like, I better say something, otherwise people yell at me or whatever. Instead of this guilt trip, it should be, I, I just, 
can't help but speak of the things which I have seen and heard, like John and Peter, back in Acts chapter 4. Like, they just can't help it. You didn't have to motivate Paul to go over and be shipwrecked and be tortured and all these things. I'm like, Paul, don't worry. We're here for you. We're going to motivate you. We're going to encourage you. Paul's like, I got this. Stop hanging on to me. Leave me alone. I am leaving. Goodbye. You couldn't get him to shut up about Jesus. But that means you have to have the true experience that only comes from being with Jesus himself. So all that to say, this is how we're going to close. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been on the wrong side of the message. And you've been coming to church and you've been discouraged because you just don't feel like you're good enough to be here. And no matter how many times you say it's not about how good you are, it's about what Jesus has done, you've missed the message. Well, then today you can start afresh. You say, Lord, I'm thankful. I'm, th I'm so thankful that you love me enough that it's not about what I can do. And maybe you're a person here who's just like, you haven't reached that point where you're bold, where you're securing Christ. Then today could be a day that you get a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit. But as we move forward, you know, May is an interesting time because you'll see a decline in attendance in youth group. It's just the way it is. People have prom, people have graduation, we're going into summer, people are moving on. And a lot of seniors especially, like if you look at our senior class, how it was in the beginning of the year versus now, it just it always does that. So I expect that every single year. So, well, now I have to think about a job. And now I have to think about doing blah, blah, blah. And you think about getting into college and all these great things, but the great things have become ultimate things. And so our priorities are getting mixed up because we think, well, if I don't get into the college I want to, then people won't love me. I won't be accepted. I will have failed. If I don't get a job soon, then all my friends will make fun of me. We're missing the point. We're trying to please the wrong people. Instead, let's like take advantage of the years that we have to reach other people for Jesus Christ. But that only comes by having a true experience in him, which means you rest, which means literally do nothing until God moves you. Be honest with God and say, God, I need you to move me. Because if I move myself, we're all in trouble.